fire and on his head were many crowns and he has the name inscribed that no one knows but himself he's clothed in a robe dripped in blood his name is called the word of God nothing but the blood you know without the blood of Jesus you cannot be washed without the blood of Jesus you can't overcome Satan without the blood of Jesus there is no life without the blood of Jesus you are cannot be a son or a daughter it's only because of the blood amen, amen. see there's nothing that we can give God that would change our situation or circumstance it's only by the blood amen the Bible says that there's life in the blood and if you broke God's law he'll take a life for a life that's where you get an eye of an eye and tooth for a tooth it's a life for a life so he used to sacrifice lambs and goats and sheep and bulls and oxen and because a life had to be shed for trespasses against God because you know that all sin all offense all 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 it's against God See, you might, someone might have hurt you. Someone might have done something wrong to you. You might have done something wrong to them. Ultimately, it's against God. Isn't it interesting that you could ask someone to forgive you and they don't, but God forgives you. Because all offense is against God. All trespasses is against God. Because we're made in His image and likeness and He lives in us. And it's only because of the blood of Jesus the shedding of the blood at the cross that we are can stand here today and say we are forgiven and set free by His grace only because of the blood see someone's righteous acts cannot save them only the righteousness of God see no one's good deeds can save them only the good deeds of God Amen. you see we are, we are saved by grace we are saved by the unmerited favour because of the blood and where that priest would go in day after day, night after night, year after year, and sacrifice bulls and goats. And they would be forgiven because of the shed of the shedding of the blood. But their conscience could never change. They were still that same rotten, dirty sinner. But because of the blood of Jesus, we no longer have to stay dirty, rotten sinners saved by grace. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We have gone from death to life. That your nature has been changed into the nature of the dearly beloved Son. He's restored us back to our rightful place. That's why we can say we are seated in heavenly places because of the blood. If you don't know Jesus tonight, after tonight, you must know Him because of the blood. Hallelujah and say this when the devil comes to accuse you and we try to justify but ultimately don't plead innocent and don't plead guilty just plead the blood <laughs> plead the blood hallelujah plead the blood come on give the Lord a clap without his blood we cannot be saved amen I'm not preaching tonight so you can be seated. Doran, don't worry about it. Just preach next week. Welcome, everyone. All good. Praise God. Thank you for another 
Wonderful day, Lord, that we can come and worship in your name. His name is above every name, amen? Okay, so quick announcement. All the kids are here. What's up? Oh. So all that time you didn't hear me, let's start again. Everyone stay down. No, you heard me, huh? <laughs> Guys, you can stay in contact with us with this mark of the beast. I mean, uh, this scanning device, you can look us all up. I, don't, I would encourage you guys to go back to some old sermons and, and um, something that, that spoke to you, go back and listen. Um, between, I mean, we've got Pastor Dorian preaching tonight and next week, so I'm excited. And, uh, but between uh, Rabi and myself and Dorian, we don't talk about our messages. We, don't, we might share a revelation, but we never talk about what we're going to say, what we're going to do week by week. Because we want to be led by the Holy Spirit. And a lot of the times you'll find some messages are intertwined and some, you know, some things are said on a Wednesday, maybe on a Sunday. Because we want the Holy Spirit to run the show. See, He knows what you need. I don't. I'd like to preach the same message every week because I enjoy preaching one thing. But doesn't, what I say doesn't change you. It's what the Holy Spirit says that will change you. It's His power and His glory that will change you. Amen? So you can stay up to date with all that um, um, sermons that we've got. Um, uh, was there anything else I've forgotten? Oh, yeah, people keep asking about giving. So there's a box at the back. I know we're hopeless with that. So, But um, there's a box at the back, or you can give online. Um, oh, some good news re- uh, regarding the house in Brazil. Um, we've got some bodgy videos from Serge, but just uh, they, it's up, it's rendered, and they're nearly finished. So we reckon another maybe 30 60 days, that should be finished. This guy's, yeah, you want to put it in my mouth too? Or what? Yeah. Like that. Uh. Um, so we're hoping to get something on that in Brazil and um, show you guys what's been happening. So it's, a, it's an honour to be able to bless the family in Brazil. So we thank you guys that gave and, um, and prayed and, and everything else. So it's an awesome. So... That's coming soon. Uh, other than that, I haven't got much more to say because I have got a lot more to say, but uh, I can't say it. But um, um, Pastor Doran, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Pastor Tony. Can we honour Pastor Tony? <laughs> Seriously, we've got amazing pastors, amazing leaders here and um, yeah, just want to honour Pastor Tony and Pastor Rabs tonight because what, what God is doing here uh, through our leaders is significant and what he is doing is building a mature body. He's laying foundation after foundation after foundation to build maturity here and that's why I say it's significant and that's why it's exciting. But I give it up um, to our leaders, so let's, uh, let's just thank them once again. It's good to be with you. Um, yeah, welcome, kids. Um, if my kids charge me, um, I might just have to preach with them on my shoulders or hanging off me. But um, it's good to have the kids here. You know, I, I, I remember someone saying... A while back, he said, you know, kids used to be in the service. Um, you know, all of us went to church with kids.
kids in the service and now they've got kids' church and youth group and all that. And that's all good. There is certainly value in that. Um, but I remember someone saying, you know, the problem with kids' church and youth group is that parents have outsourced Christianity to kids' church and youth group. And so it's good having the kids with us tonight because it reminds us that it's actually our responsibility. It's not something we can palm off to, uh, to a youth leader or a kids' church leader or anything. As parents, it's our responsibility to teach our kids and to model Christ to them. Amen? All right, so I'm preaching about an unplowed field, though the screen says an unplowed heart. And I'll read this first scripture. It's Proverbs chapter 21, verse 4, and it says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the unplowed field of the wicked, produce sin. He says there's an unplowed field. Thanks, Mary. There's an unplowed field that produces sin. And he tells us what that unplowed field is and its haughty eyes and a proud heart. And if you want to know the, the meaning of haughty, it's arrogant. So arrogant eyes and a proud heart. So I kind of consider arrogance and pride a similar thing. But pride is an unplowed field which produces sin. Now, so often... We can focus on dealing with the sin, the fruit of sin. And I'm always talking to people and I'm saying, don't worry about the sin. The sin is just a symptom. I think we should probably change the spelling of symptom and maybe spell it like symptom. <laughs> because sin is just a symptom. It's, not, it's never actually the problem. It's never the cause. So if you want to deal with the sin which is a fruit, you've got to deal with the cause of it, the root of it, the tree of it, the branch of it, not the sin itself. And um, so just before we get into it, let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that your word is life to those who find it and healing to all their flesh. I thank you your word would be received on fertile soil tonight, that not one of us would leave unchanged tonight. We love you. We adore you. We magnify you. And we thank you for what you're going to teach us tonight, what we're going to receive from you tonight. We thank you for what you'll do in our hearts. We never want to grow familiar with your presence, with your body, with your word, with your truth. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You have my tongue tonight. Thanks for being here. Amen. 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 I was speaking to a lady um, who came a few months ago, and uh, I haven't really spoken to her much since she came. She only came once, and she, she wasn't able to come because she's a full-time carer for someone, but she was, you know, she was really impacted. She came and just sat under the word once. She'd never been in church before. And I was speaking to her last week and I said, how are you going? And she goes, you know what? I changed since that time. And God, Jesus has been revealing himself to her in, in uh, visions and that type of thing. But she's only ever been to church once. And she said, I changed after that time I came. The Holy Spirit shared one thing with her. He said to her, you're not a victim. 
And she was telling me this during the week. I haven't spoken. She's like, you know what? I got one thing when I came, and it was I'm not a victim. And I'd, I realised I'd been a victim for decades. And she goes, I let it go, and I've changed so much. And it was amazing to hear that from her. And she was so happy. She had such joy. She's like, my life has changed. Because she'd been through a lot of stuff. She'd been betrayed. And she said, for decades I was a victim. But I let it go, and my life has changed. And isn't that amazing? Just sitting under the word once, and her life was changed forever. And I want to encourage us that those of us who are here week in, week out, like, we just can't grow familiar with the Word of God. She came once and her life was changed. And so often we can sit here month after month, year after year, and be like, oh, I've heard this before, or yeah, I know this, and oh, I wish that person was here for this. (laughs) Or that doesn't apply to me, but let's lean in. And, and get that heart in the right posture to receive because all of our lives can be changed continuously. Amen? All right. So I'm going to go to the, um, the book of Daniel. Actually, just before I go there, about that, that lady, I was thinking about it this morning and because I'm speaking about um, pride tonight. And I thought pride... There's probably two things, pride and fear, that are um, two really um, like they're like buttress roots of a, of a massive tree that can exist in our lives and in our spirits, but they can go undetected. And what I would liken it to is driving and having pride and fear in your blind spots and you can be driving for miles and miles and miles and they be right there with you but you can't see them the enemy is really good at keeping pride and fear hidden and undetected and that's why it's through the word of God through the Holy Spirit that we can actually hey turn our neck and see what's in our blind spot and often Something is lurking there, but the Holy Spirit will show us what that is. All right, go with me to Daniel chapter 4, verse 24 to 37. It's a long one, but we'll get through it. Just to give you a bit of background, um, (coughs) Nebuchadnezzar, who knows who Nebuchadnezzar is, and every Assyrian here raised their hand and said, yes, I do. Um. They claim him as, you know, the, the, emp- the, the ruler of Babylon. But I reckon he was Aussie. <laughs> Neville, well, I don't know, like, I got, my name's Dorian, but I got called Doza. <laughs> so I thought maybe this guy's Aussie because he's, you know, Nezar. <laughs> but Nebuchadnezzar, I think his name's probably the only funny thing about him. But he ruled from um, 600 to about 562 BC. And here in this scripture, he's had a disturbing dream. And uh, he's asked for the different astrologers to interpret the dream. And they couldn't. So he comes to Daniel and he asks Daniel to interpret the dream. 
And um, Daniel gives this interpretation. If we go to verse 24 to 37. <clears throat> Daniel says, This is the interpretation, Your Majesty. And this is the, the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. This is Daniel speaking. You will be driven away from, you, from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by you for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Now, we can often be excited about receiving a word from God. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar was that excited about receiving that particular prophecy from Daniel or that interpretation of that dream. But here he is, Nebuchadnezzar. He was, actually there's another scripture where Daniel refers to him as the king of kings. This is how um, powerful Nebuchadnezzar was. He was the absolute monarch of the whole region. There was, he, he conquered the Egyptians, he conquered the Assyrians, he conquered um, Judah, he conquered everyone around him. There was no rival to him. That's how great his power was. And I've got a couple of pictures that Chris uh, helped me with, given that he was of Assyrian background as well. Um, when I grew up, I grew up in Fairfield, and there was a gang there, it was called the Assyrian Kings. I reckon they were named after Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> but is Chris there to put the photos up? Yep. Um, let's just put the first one up, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. He, he was responsible for one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. These, I mean, this is just an artist impression. Um, but it was one of the seven wonders of the world. He did it. That was his residence in Babylon. Um, he also built the Ishtar Gate. We got a photo of that. Quite a grand entrance to Babylon. But I'm, I'm showing you these to give you an idea of what this kingdom was like. And there's part of that gate, you can actually see it in, in Germany. That's part of it there, restored. Um, and it's amazing because there's another photo of a, of a capsule. And this is in the British Museum. It's called the Babylonian Chronicle Tablet. And it actually describes his conquest of Judah and Jerusalem. He, he was the one who destroyed Solomon's temple uh, in Jerusalem. And this tablet talks about him appointing King Zedekiah in, um, in Judah as the king of Judah. That's sitting in the museum in, uh, in the UK. But I love it when archaeology just confirms the Bible because if you go there, it, it all does. But um, this is him and he's appointed Daniel... Um, as, as an administrator in his kingdom and Daniel gives him this message but he's at the pinnacle of power he's at the pinnacle of power that, that not many people would ever experience the power he had but his life falls apart 
anyway. He's at the pinnacle of power and his life absolutely falls apart. Because if we go to verse 28, it says this. It says, everything Daniel said actually happened. I'll pick it up from verse 28. It says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, after Daniel gives him this interpretation, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals, just as Daniel had said. You will eat grass like the ox, just as Daniel had said. Seven times will pass by you, for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. The greatest emperor-conqueror of the time in his life just falls apart like that. And it's amazing. Once it happens, and we'll get to this bit later, he's actually glad that it's happened. His life's completely destroyed. He's become an animal. And afterwards, he actually acknowledges that it was for the good. Because he recognises there was a spiritual cancer in him that was eating him alive. That was making him an, an animal anyway. That what happened to him physically was happening to him spiritually when be he became an animal. And we'll get there later on. And, but he basically says whatever treatment he went through was worth it. <clears throat> what was it? It was pride. He acknowledges that what God did to rid him of his pride was actually worth it. Thomas Adams says this, he says, Pride thrust Nebuchadnezzar out of men's society. Saul out of his kingdom, Adam out of paradise, Haman out of court, and Lucifer out of heaven. If pride thrust all those people out of their places, what is pride thrusting us out of? What heavenly destiny is pride trying to thrust us out of? If we harbour it, God will find a way to rid us of it. 
Spurgeon says this, he says, No matter how dear you are to God, if pride is harboured in your spirit, he will whip it out of you. They that go up in your own estimation must come down again by his discipline. God whipped pride out of Nebuchadnezzar. And as believers, there's two ways we can deal with it. We can either come to God with our pride or by his mercy, he will whip it out of us by his discipline. I think they're the only two options. <laughs> but maybe God is whipping you out of it now. I don't know. I know he's whipped it out of me um, in the past and he, and he probably still is. Maybe your life is falling apart like Nebuchadnezzar's. Um, I know people, and we probably all know people who's... Um, and I was, I was talking to someone just a couple of weeks ago, and um, God actually addressed this pride in this person very clearly. And they, they said, no, I'm not prideful. You've got this all wrong. And they weren't talking to me, they were talking to someone else. And it's been really, really sorrowful to watch this person's life fall apart. And I was talking to them just a couple of weeks, like, and they're like, I don't know what's happening. How can my life be going like this? Is it just a curse? Like someone must have cursed me. And this person isn't even able to receive and what God has for them. But God presented them with it, similar to, to what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar. And God does, God will send Daniels into your life to speak to you, to, um, to warn you about things, about the danger of pride. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, I'm not prideful, then I'm afraid to say that if you look up the, the, the biblical diagnostic manual, that is the one statement that probably means you are proud. <laughs> that is the first sign of it, if you say, I'm not proud. But uh, it, pride, if you look at it this way, it is the barrier to all spiritual progress. And that is not an exaggeration. <clears throat> so look, look at Nebuchadnezzar's life. In verse 29, which we read, it said 12 months later. So he had this warning and it came to pass 12 months later. And you would think he had nothing to worry him. No worries, king of kings. No one could fire him. Uh, money wasn't an issue. He couldn't get conquered. No one else had an army like his. Um, he was the absolute king of kings in, in that time, in that region. And in verse 4, if we go this, we didn't read this bit. It's the prequel. We'll go there now. Daniel chapter 4, verse 4 to 5. He says this. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me very afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. And it goes on to describe what his dream was. 
He sees this massive tree and he sees every creature under the earth sheltering uh, under this tree, the birds of the air, every creature on the earth feeding from this tree, massive tree. And it was magnificent. But then if we go to Daniel chapter 4, verse 13 to 17, this is what he sees. He says, In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven, and he called in a loud voice, Cut down that tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. And Daniel says to him, that tree is you. So the first thing we notice is this king of kings, the king of Babylon, has everything. He says he's content and he's prosperous, but he's terrified and he can't sleep and he's disturbed. And isn't... And Daniel's saying, Daniel's saying to him, hey, God's warning you, just humble yourself. That tree is you. God is going to come and cut you down if you don't humble yourself. And God's trying to show you that you're not the king of the universe. That you're kind of weak and lowly. You're terrified and disturbed. So just humble yourself and, and maybe it won't work out <laughs> like the dream has, has prophesied. And we know Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction. Pride comes before a fall. And Daniel's saying, change, turn, repent. Maybe this won't happen. But it does happen. So no matter how prosperous, no matter how content, no matter the status, he couldn't sleep. There aren't many people who get to to, to his level. But I think it's safe to say everyone who does realises that the stress, the fear, the disturbance, the insomnia is amplified. I've seen it. I work with some really wealthy individuals and I've worked with them for decades. And it's actually a, a really... Um, confronting thing to see where the, the richer they've gotten over a longer period of time the more depressed they've become and for a long time I thought okay it must just be you know my clients <laughs> but it's it's all of them and I'm not here to talk against wealth or, or God's blessing or anything like that but we can often have this idea that um, a certain status or certain wealth will lead to that contentment and that prosperity, and maybe then I'll have peace. But here he is, the king of the king of kings. He can't sleep. He's disturbed and he's terrified because he learns what 
all of us learn that the human soul needs something greater than even an empire. That you can take the empires of the Middle East and pour them into your heart and you still won't be satisfied. You can build the hanging gardens of Babylon and have that as your residence and you still won't be satisfied. You can have your Ishtar gate and you still won't be satisfied. You can conquer Judah, Assyria, the Egyptians and you still won't be satisfied. Because there's only one thing that will satisfy the human heart and that's Jesus Christ. Pride, success, achievement, they don't bring sleep. Nebuchadnezzar learned that. And unless you are in Christ, in the one who can sleep in the wildest of storms, then you won't have peace. And a lot of people think, if I could finally get there, if I, you know, they pitch their whole life on getting to that one thing. And... You're miserable if you do get you're miserable if you don't get there and you're miserable if you do get there because you realize that thing you were striving for for so long that one thing that was going to make your life okay you actually got it and realized it could never make your life okay <clears throat> So Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen and it says, 12 months later, he says this. He says, we read it, he says, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and the glory of my majesty? This is what I've done. Isn't, this is what I've created. This is what I've conquered. And this is, that is the actual sound of pride. Pride looks around it and says, I did it. Look what I've done. Look what I've achieved. It's because of me. Because of what I've done. It's because of what I'm owed. But here's the thing. Pride shows up if life is going well, like Nebuchadnezzar, before his dream. <laughs> or when life is not going well, Pride can show up just as much and sound actually the same. So if life is going well, we can have a... Pride can, can show itself as a sense of entitlement. That's because I've worked hard. It's because I've worked harder than everyone else. It's because I'm smarter. It's because I'm, I've been more honest or I've been more ethical. It's maybe because God favours me more, whatever it might be. But that's all pride. And then if life isn't going well... It says, well, I'm suffering more than everyone else. Things aren't fair. You know what the greatest statement of pride sounds like? I deserve better. I deserve better than what I've got right now. I'm having a harder life than everyone else. And I felt to focus more on that tonight than on look what I've achieved. Because that is how pride can get into our blind spot. Because we can think, hang on a sec, I'm not being arrogant. I'm not being prideful. 
I'm suffering here. But really, at the root of that suffering is that victim mentality, which is a prideful mentality which says, my life should be better than it is right now. And I deserve better than this. And that is aimed squarely at God himself. Saying, God, this is not fair. Pride is always owed something. I'm owed these blessings. I'm owed these good things. I'm owed a better husband. I'm owed a better wife. I'm owed a better job. I'm owed, owed, owed. I should be getting more than I have. I'm owed more than I've received. So contrast that, to, to bring it home that point, contrast that with true humility. James 4.6 says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Because hum- humility looks at everything as a gift. That's true humility. If something good comes, you say, wow, I don't deserve this. This is God's grace. This is God's gift. I didn't earn this. It's out of God's goodness, his mercy, his grace that I've even received this. I didn't earn this. This is God's gift. If God, if God gave me what I truly deserved, I'd be lost. That's what humility sounds like. Whatever I do have is a gift from God and I can be grateful to God. And I love that um, the Bible says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And it's like God has given us the instruction manual on how to leave pride at the gate. Because if we can come with thanksgiving then we're thanking him for it. We're not thanking ourselves for it. And that's actually how we enter into his presence. Because if we enter his gate without thanksgiving, we risk coming in prideful. And he says he resists the the proud. So we can actually come into his presence and he's resisting us. And that's why he gives us that psalm which says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Now I'm talking about humility and there is a false humility where it says, I don't deserve anything. I'm uh, I'm so so dependent on God that I, I don't even want anything from God. And that sounds like humility, but it's not. It's a false humility. Because... What it says is this, it says, I don't deserve this, so I don't want it. I don't deserve this, I'm awful, I'm a failure, I'm a bad person, I don't want this. That's what false humility sounds like, I I really don't deserve this. But if you look real closely at it, it's a reverse form of pride. Because what it really says is this, it says, I should earn this, 
I want to earn this and I won't take it unless I've earned it. Do we get that? It says, I, it basically says, I won't even let God give me this as a gift. And unless I can earn it, I don't want it. And that's a reverse form of pride. And that's how false humility hides. But humility, it's free. Everything's a gift. It's free. It's undeserved. It's unearned. And the Bible encourages us to look at life that way. It encourages us to look at salvation that way. As Pastor Tony was saying, you can't earn it. You can't achieve it by works. It's just received. It's not achieved. Our salvation is a gift from God. It's by grace. Lest anyone should boast in pride. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar says, didn't I earn this? He fought for it. He conquered every empire around him. And not that I've studied him that much, but one thing I do know, he was on the front line of every battle. He himself was fighting. He wasn't an armchair general sitting back directing. He was right there on the front row fighting himself, conquering every single army, putting him, his own life at risk on the front line. So maybe that's why he's standing up saying, didn't I earn this? <clears throat> I, I'll give pride this analogy. I remember I was in the first year of uni and I had a friend in the year before. And you know, when you're at uni, you swap notes and, oh, can I have your notes? And, hey, did you do that um, court report assignment? Do you reckon I could get a copy of it? You know, it might just help me do mine. So my friend sent me his, his assignment and it was the exact same assignment as mine, as the one I've got. So I um, reformatted it. I put a border around it, I think. I changed the name and submitted it. And he, he was really angry when, when, I, when I told him, not just told him that I'd completely plagiarised his assignment, but that, it, that I'd actually got a higher mark than him. <laughs> I got 19 out of 20 and he only got 16 out of 20 for the exact same assignment. The border, yeah, I mean, just goes to show how important the border is. But I took credit for his work. I, I plagiarised his work and I said, I did this. And I took the credit for it when I did nothing apart from the border. He did all the work. Um, he was even generous enough to give me his assignment. And I got the result. And I treated it as though it was mine. <laughs> but that's how we can be to God. When we can receive his gift, his blessing... And instead of giving him the credit, we take the credit ourselves. And we, in a way, plagiarise God's grace, plagiarise his work, and take the credit for it ourselves. Because pride ultimately says, I'm in charge. 
And so if life's going well, it's because of me. And if life's not going well, then I've just got to, I've got to fix this. And you almost leave God out of it altogether. <clears throat> and when I was preparing this, I, I said this before, but that statement that I deserve to be treated better, that is a, a real dangerous statement. And I think the, the place we hear it most is in relationships. In marriages, I deserve to be treated better. And when you believe that, you end up crying uh, because of your spouse rather than for them. And that's what pride does. That's how pride manifests. That... If only, they could, if only they would change, then maybe I'll change. Or if only they would change, my life would be better. It means you don't pray for your spouse. You pray that they would change, not for their sake, not for their salvation, but for your, for your sake, for your life to improve. <clears throat> so instead of saying, God... I pray that you would make me more loving and give me the patience to love my spouse. Help me be long-suffering. Help me, show me how I can love them better. We can actually come to God and say, God, we ain't going to change them. I've been at this for months now and I've been, you said knock and the door will be open. I've been knocking and I've been that really persistent woman at the door knocking, when are you going to change them? <clears throat> I deserve to be treated better. So, how does pride manifest? It's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar turned into an animal. He began to, it says he lived like an animal for seven times, which could mean seven months or it could mean seven seasons we don't know but God is showing us that pride defaces our humanity and that what Nebuchadnezzar became physically was what he had become spiritually because he had insisted on being more than a man more than who God had created him to be he had actually become less If you try and be more than who God has made you, God will make you less than that. It is the natural consequence of pride that you will actually become less than who God has made you. <clears throat> By him becoming an animal, it's, the Bible is showing us what he had become in reality. <clears throat> animals, they can't, um, the first thing you notice about an animal is they can't empathise. Yes, you can have a, a cat that'll come and you know, rub, rub up against you, you know, when it's hungry, or you can have a friendly dog or anything like that, but, uh, and 
some people might say, of course an animal can empathise. When you put it this way, I think you'll understand why an animal can't empathise, because an animal can't weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, because that is true empathy. An animal can't be compassionate, an animal... And so the first thing you notice about someone operating in pride is they begin to lose that empathy for others because it can, you can become so self-focused that you're living like an animal which is on that, in that survival mentality, a survival instinct. <clears throat> um, C.S. Lewis says, Pride makes the heart want to run away from anything better than it. Pride is what makes you feel threatened around others. It's only pride that makes you unhappy or offended when someone makes you feel less attractive, less intelligent, less successful or less spiritual. So if you feel threatened in someone, someone's presence, obviously unless they're being violent or something like that, if you go to plough your heart to find out why that is, you'll often find that pride is the root of that. They make you feel less something, less attractive, less successful, less spiritual, less intelligent, less personable, whatever it might be. Pride is where that feeling of being threatened comes from. Pride is what makes you compare yourself to others. Pride is what makes you hate situations in, in which you have to admit vulnerability, weakness, or even that you need help. And this is the big one. Pride makes you incapable of joy. <clears throat> and that's um, linking it back to what I was saying before about an animal. An animal can't have joy. Nebuchadnezzar became an animal. Animals can be, um, can be satisfied and they can, you know, your dog will get happy if you feed it, but your dog can't um, rejoice in a tribulation. Your, your dog can't rejoice in a trial. That ability to have joy, not, notwithstanding your circumstances, is purely a human thing because God has breathed his spirit into you. And that's why you can have true joy no matter what's going on. But when the Bible says Nebuchadnezzar became an animal, he could not have joy. <clears throat> Pride sucks out all joy. And again, why? Because when things are going well, what does pride say? Even when things are going well. Pride says, well, about time. This should have happened sooner. This should have happened five years ago. And if things aren't going well, pride sucks the joy out of life because, again, pride says this isn't fair. I deserve better. So when things are going well, there's no joy. And when things aren't going well, there's no joy. And that is how pride sucks joy out of your life. 
it destroys your ability to handle good times and bad times. <clears throat> the next one, fear and anxiety. It's, it's really confronting to, to understand that pride is at, actually at the root of fear and anxiety. When we refuse to humbly rest in God's sovereign care. Look at this. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 to 7. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He makes a connection between anxiety and humbling yourself. Because when you haven't humbled yourself, you're in control. You're in charge. You have to control this situation. And of course that's going to provoke anxiety and fear in you because you know you're limited. You know you can't control the situation. And that's why anxiety and fear takes over. But Peter's saying, humble yourself by casting that anxiety onto the one who actually can control this, who's in control of everything, and that's God himself. Because the root of all worry, anxiety, fear, it's the belief that what happens to us is ultimately in our hands. The root of all anxiety and worry is that what happens to us is ultimately in our hands. If you think what happens is ultimately in your hands, that's pride. Because it's not in your hands. Just like it wasn't in Nebuchadnezzar's hands, it was in God's hands. <clears throat> Next one, prayerlessness. A humble heart submits itself to God in prayer because it understands it can't do anything apart from God. But someone who's self-reliant doesn't need to pray. And I'll say one thing and then I'll move on to the next point. But, and you've probably heard this said before, pridefulness is prayerlessness. Or prayerlessness is pridefulness. <clears throat> the next one, and I'm almost finished the manifestations, rebellion against God, it's resistance, um, a lack of submission, that's another way pride manifests itself, it says, I know better. I don't submit to God, I know better than God, or I don't submit to leadership, I know better than them, I don't, sit to my, uh, I don't submit to my boss, I know better than them, I don't submit to my husband, I know better than him. Pride always knows better. Another important one, and I, I wrote this heading down because I couldn't um, define it in any other way. I, I said tight. And I mean that <laughs> financially. Um, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, please turn away and humble yourself so that these bad things don't happen to you. Do you know what he says? 
He says, remember the oppressed and the poor. And so if you want to know the level of, of pride in your heart, it's what you do with your money. <clears throat> so, verse 34 to 36, if we can go there. Nebuchadnezzar is actually restored by God, quite amazingly. At the end, so the previous verse was speaking about how he completely turned into an animal. And then it says this, verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. Isn't it amazing how his, it says, my sanity was restored. It's like when he thought he was in charge, when he looked around saying, this is all because of me, when he was operating in pride, he lost his mind. He became insane. And that's why I say something like anxiety is rooted in pride because it can make you insane when you think you have to be in control of your, your life, everyone around you, your world, your finances, everything. He says his sanity was restored when he what? When he raised his eyes toward heaven. When he took his eyes off his own kingdom, because in the previous verses he was saying, is this not the great Babylon I have built? He's looking at his own kingdom. Next minute, he's an ox. And it says, but when I raised my eyes toward heaven, my sanity was restored. Isn't that amazing? Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His, now he's talking about God's kingdom. Before he was only talking about his own kingdom. But now he's focused on God's kingdom. God's kingdom is an eternal dominion. Hang on, but before you were saying, your kingdom's an, an eternal dominion. Now he's saying God's kingdom is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Why? Because he'd humbled himself. God resists the pride, but he gives grace to the humble. And it goes on to say, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. This is the continuation of Nebuchadnezzar's prayer. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Because true greatness is in being humble before God. That is true greatness and his greatness was restored to him plus more 
because he turned his eyes to heaven instead of his own little kingdom here on earth. Well, not little, but you know what I mean. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, not the king of Babylon, the king of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. The great Nebuchadnezzar, who reigned for 46 years, conquered the world, admits in this final line, and those who walk in pride, he, God, is able to humble. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you, you said, seek first your kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. And I just want to give everyone an opportunity now just to Search your own heart. And if there's anything you want to confess to the Lord, maybe there was something I said tonight that you related to or resonated with, you can bring that to the Lord right now. Just where you are in your seat, I believe that God wants to cleanse us tonight. Pastor Tony spoke about him washing us at the beginning. In any hint of pride, Jesus will wash away. It was God who restored Nebuchadnezzar. It was God who humbled him and it was God who restored him. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar and it wasn't his own effort. It was God. So, Lord, we, pr we lay our pride at your feet. We search our hearts. We plough our hearts to, to identify where that pride is that produces sin in us. Holy Spirit, we ask you to show us, to guide us, to lead us into all truth. 
that so many people here will be free from the torment of pride. Thank you, you're giving grace to people right now, Lord. People humbling themselves before you right now. Pouring out your grace, your mercy. Thank you, Jesus. He gives grace to the humble. He resists, but as soon as you drop your guard, His grace rushes in. There's no condemnation. There's no shame. There's grace. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. There's someone here who's been just struggling to get in into prayer, into the presence of God. And that is going to open up for you now. Someone being freed from anxiety. Your life is not your own. And all these things we're talking about, the Bible said, crucify the flesh. Didn't say manage it. Didn't say talk about it. Didn't say grit your teeth and keep going with it. it said crucify it. So, Lord, we don't manage our pride anymore. We crucify it in your presence. Thank you, joy is restored. True joy is restored. True joy. Joy in rejoicing in tribulation. True joy.
I see someone that's really shifting for them from being tormented in their trial to rejoicing in their trial. It's in God's hands. Thank you, Jesus. We'll close the service. If anyone wishes just to sit in the presence of God, we'll we'll keep this music on. Uh, If anyone wants prayer, feel free to come forward. But otherwise, we love you. We'll see you on Wednesday. Amen. Amen.